give Jesus another hand clap of praise this morning. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Pastor Dustin, for uh, just the opportunity to speak. It's always an honor and, uh, and a privilege, and I pray uh, this morning that God uh, opens our hearts and opens our minds. I always kind of have to preface, I am totally not Pastor Dustin. So again, if I put you to sleep, just go to sleep. I don't care. Just, uh, just roll with it. So uh, we're going to be in, uh, we started a series last week, Pastor Dustin did, called Seven. And that is all about the first part of the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible where Jesus comes to the Apostle John in a dream or in a vision. Now, the Apostle John, he was a disciple of Jesus and he was the last of the 12 to be alive. So he was, he was really old. He was uh, exiled to an island and uh, so they called him the elder. So he was the oldest of the remaining original disciples. And uh, so Jesus came to, to John in a vision, and he told him, John, uh, he told him a lot of things. But the first thing he told him was, I want you to write some letters to seven churches that are in what's called Asia Minor. Now, today we call that Turkey. But he told him, there's seven churches that I want you to write seven letters to. That's why we're titled it Seven. Uh, and so last week we talked about the first of those churches, which was the church at Ephesus. It's where we get the book of Ephesians from. Today we're talking about the church at Smyrna. But last week, Ephesus was the church that you've heard of that kind of left their first love. So they were on fire for Jesus and then they sort of went lukewarm. They sort of cooled off. And Pastor Dustin talked about how when we do that in our lives, we need to repent, uh, remember, repent, and return. So this week, we're on to the second letter. So we're going about 35 miles north of Ephesus to the town of Smyrna. And so uh, it was, like I said, it was 35 miles north of Ephesus. Today, Smyrna is actually the only city that, of the seven cities that is still a city today. It's the modern-day city of Izmir. Now, it was known as a really, really beautiful city. It was probably the most beautiful city of the seven cities, and that was kind of their claim to fame, was just they were super, super proud of how they looked. Now, the word for Smyrna, the actual Greek word for Smyrna, means myrrh. Now, where have we heard in the Bible myrrh before? Gold, yep, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's what they brought to Jesus uh, when he was born. Now, myrrh was an ointment that came from a tree that was really, really thorny. And the thing about myrrh is you had to crush it. It was a fragrance. You had to crush it for it to emit an aroma. It didn't smell until you crushed it. So myrrh was a fragrance that was also used for embalming. When people would die, they would, you know, you didn't have embalming like you have now. And so they would just try to cover up the stench with myrrh. So myrrh was around at the birth of Jesus and at the death of Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But Smyrna had the exclusive right. So in all of Asia Minor, in all of Turkey, Smyrna had the exclusive rights to produce and to export myrrh. They were a city that was on the edge of Turkey. So they were a seaport, and they exported that all over the Roman world. Now, out of those seven churches that we're going to talk about over the next six weeks now, out of those seven churches, five of them received some sort of rebuke or correction or uh, some kind of rebuke from Jesus. Two of them did not receive anything like that. It was totally encouragement. Smyrna was one of those churches. 
So the theme of this letter to that church is persecution. Now, the reason why Smyrna didn't get any kind of rebuke was because they faced extreme persecution, big time. Now, all the early church, uh, the early church in the first century, all the early church faced persecution, but Smyrna was really the worst. So the price in the first century AD for being a Christian, it was like super, super high. But at Smyrna, it was the worst of the worst. So the reason why they didn't receive any rebuke was that they had not let the world move in. They had not succumbed to the paganism, the the worldliness of the day. And this was not like our culture. This was not a Christian, even though, you know, you can debate whether we're a Christian culture or not. This was totally uh, no question about it. The Roman, uh, first century in Rome was not a Christian culture. So they had stood strong in the face of that persecution. So there wasn't a whole lot for Jesus to rebuke or correct because they really hadn't done anything wrong. They had not kind of given in to the world. They had not allowed the world to move in like Ephesus did. See, in the first century, Rome, Rome was, it ruled the world. They were, uh, they were the, 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 the big uh, kahuna, so to speak. And so the Roman emperor, uh, during the time of John's letters, his name was Domitian. Now, it's, it's important that John's letters come at the time that they did because Domitian was one of the worst Roman emperors to be a Christian under. There were literal bloodbaths during the reign of Domitian. See, Romans, the thing about Rome... In Rome, you worshipped a lot of gods. They had a lot of different gods. But what the thing was, Caesar was God. Caesar's where we get the word czar or Kaiser or, or however you say it. So uh, you had to worship Caesar as Lord. He was not just like the president is today or whatever, the prime minister. He literally was their God. So what you did is you would go to the temple once a year and you would have to burn, you would be required to burn incense to all the gods, and to Caesar. And if you did that, you would receive this certificate that said, I'm good, I've punched my card, I burnt incense to Caesar. And you had to say, Caesar is Lord. Now, if you didn't have a certificate, that basically meant death. You were going to die. So death would be in the form of mass executions, they would feed Christians to the lines. Anybody ever seen Gladiator? It is one of the best movies of all time, and it's one of my favorite movies. Think about, the, so the Colosseum, that is literally where they would send Christians and the lines come out from, and they would just, it would literally be a bloodbath, and it was a sport to kill Christians. So that put the Christians all across the Roman world, but especially at Smyrna, that put them in a predicament, because you can either say, Caesar is Lord, which is what Rome says, or you can do what the gospel says and say, Jesus is Lord. But if you do that, you're going to be killed. So let's put ourselves this morning for the next 20 minutes or so, put ourselves in the position of these Christians at Smyrna. Would it not be incredibly uh, encouraging to receive a letter from Jesus himself telling us what to do, telling us how to think, how to live, how to behave? You're being persecuted. You're being hunted down. You're living in poverty. You're being killed. So today, we're actually going to find out what Jesus had to say to the church at Smyrna. And like we always do, if you guys could go ahead and stand up, because we believe that the Word of God is special, and it's holy, and it's worth uh, our reverence. We're going to read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. 
and it says, and this is Jesus talking through John, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So Jesus is saying to the Smyrnans, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you're going to have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds. Father, I pray that you would teach us and uh, train us in righteousness and in godliness through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you guys can go ahead and be seated. It's interesting. So look at, at verse 8 there. Jesus calls himself the one who died and who came to life. A little bit of history, a little more history. In 600 B.C., there was a king named Attalus that came through and destroyed Smyrna, devastated it, burned it to the ground. Then about 300 years later, Alexander the Great, he was a Greek warrior, he came through and he said, I'm going to rebuild Smyrna. So he rebuilt it into this big spectacular city. Remember how I said they were, they were really proud of how beautiful they were? So all of Smyrna's folklore, their literature, their identity, their claim to fame was that they had died and they came to life. They were devastated and they were rebuilt. So Jesus says, I'm the one who died and came to life. He then in verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and your slander. And I think in those two verses, Jesus was saying to them, listen, I understand you. I get you. I understand death and resurrection. And so the God who created the universe, who took on flesh, he was choosing to identify himself with these poor, persecuted, downtrodden Christians. So that leads me to our first point. And if you're writing notes, taking notes, this is our first point. Jesus knows us better than anyone else. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible is Psalm 139. That whole psalm talks about how God knows us intimately. He formed us and he knows us. And I love what verses 1 through 6 say in that. It says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue... Behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. I love this. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This season, uh, I'm leading the, the Chosen crew. So it's basically where we literally just watch The Chosen, the TV series. And uh, it's funny that they picked me because I've never seen it. So I'm literally watching it as the crew is, as the crew is watching it. And so uh, it's pretty cool. The first episode we watched two weeks ago. And it opens up with a father and a daughter. And this is before the time of Jesus. But uh, the father calls this, his daughter, he calls her Mary. And he's reciting this scripture to her. 
and she's reciting it back. She's memorized it. Well, fast forward about 30 years or so, and we see this woman that we assume is Mary, and they call her Lilith now, and she's in a bad shape. She's got literally seven demons that have been, uh, she's demon-possessed. And all these religious leaders and these rulers and, and everybody tries to help her out. Everybody, they, everybody tries to cast those demons out of her. And what happens is they're, they're not successful. So one night of all places, she's in a bar, and the, the shot shows uh, her hand on the bar. And Jesus, uh, or a, a hand who we assume is Jesus, reaches out and touches her. And she looks up at him, and she runs away. He finds her outside. Notice he pursues her, and he calls her. Everybody else had called her not by Mary. Everybody else had called her Lilith. And so he calls her, and he says, Mary. And he starts to recite that passage of Scripture that her father recited to her. And it's just an incredible uh, illustration of how God pursues us and God knows us. And the things that we don't tell other people, the things that are hidden deep inside of us, God knows those inner parts of us. So when we face hardships, when we face trials, when we face things that are not fun, we can take comfort in the fact that God is not this distant God who's somewhere up in the clouds, who's removed from our situation. It's not like he just kind of put us on earth and said, okay, y'all just do whatever you want to, and I'm, I'm going to you know, come back at a certain time, and y'all are on your own till then. No, he is a God who chooses to identify with us in the person of Jesus. So we can take comfort in the fact that we worship a, and serve a God who knows us better than we even think we know ourselves, and he's not going to let anything happen to us that's out of his control. So in those two words, in Revelation, uh, two, uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 9, when it says, I know, that's packed with meaning. I know your tribulation. I know your heartache and your suffering. So point number two, if you're taking notes, because, uh, because Jesus knows us so well, we don't have to fear anything. If you go on to verse 10, verse 10 in Revelation says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Let me tell you, the Smyrnans, they had a lot to be afraid of. See, when we follow Christ, it doesn't really change a whole lot about our lives, at least not on the surface. In the first century, when you followed Christ, you were literally, your, your life looked totally different than before Jesus. Number one, you were probably choosing to live in poverty. It meant that you were thrown out of the marketplace. You probably lost your job. So you had no way to provide for your family. You had no way to provide for your, for your husband, wife, kids. And the Greek word that's used for poverty right there, it doesn't even mean like lower middle class or middle class. It means the lowest of the low. So you were choosing to give up your income when you became a Christian. Number two, they face slander. See, the Jews of the day, Christianity started out as a sect of Judaism, but over time, the Jews wanted to put distance between themselves and the Christians. So in Smyrna in particular, the Jews would slander the Christians. They would say that when Christians came together, they had orgies, 
they would say that when Christians took communion, because we teach uh, uh, about the body and the blood of Jesus, that that's what that represents, they, the Jews would say that the Christians are cannibals because they're eating flesh and blood. They would say that when we call each other brother and sister, like the Bible talks about, that challenges the Jewish family unit of father and mother, son and daughter. So the Christians were made out to be marginalized. They were a subculture that could not participate in society. Number three, it was a very real possibility that Christians would be imprisoned, Christians would be tortured. In fact, the Apostle Paul, half of, this, half of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written from a jail cell. He was not, you know, sitting at his little desk writing out on his MacBook or whatever. He was literally in a jail cell writing the New Testament. So point number one, point number two about not being afraid, it builds on point number one about Jesus knowing us. So all throughout Scripture, when we're commanded not to be afraid or not to worry or don't be anxious, it never just says, don't be anxious. That's it. It always says, do not worry, do not be afraid, because I am near. Philippians 4 says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not, for I am with you. There's always two commands there. Do not be anxious, do not worry, because the Lord is near. Because the Lord is at hand. Because I know you. So the Bible doesn't actually tell us to, to, to not be afraid. He's saying, I know you and I'm close to you. That is your reason to not be afraid. And he was close to that church at Smyrna, so they didn't have to fear what they were about to suffer. Jesus knew exactly what they were going to suffer because he actually predicted it while he was here on earth. In Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Paul, who was writing from a jail cell, said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then Peter, in chapter 5, uh, chapter five verse 10 of 1 Peter, says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, in today's culture, we view hardship and persecution as something to run from. We try to avoid it. But what the Bible does, it turns our culture upside down, and it says persecution is not necessarily a bad thing. Persecution has the effect of strengthening and establishing and perfecting and, 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 and confirming us. Remember how I was talking about myrrh earlier, and remember how I said that myrrh had to be crushed to emit the aroma. See, it's no coincidence that the word Smyrna literally means myrrh. Because when the church at Smyrna was persecuted, when they were crushed, they emitted this aroma of a love for Jesus. They weren't like the Ephesians from last week. When the Ephesians faced persecution, they left their first love. What the Smyrnans did, though, when they first, when they uh, faced persecution, they fell more in love with Jesus. So the greater the persecution, the greater their love for Jesus. So that if we pick back up in verse 10, it says, Be faithful, this is Jesus still talking to the Smyrnans, Be faithful 
unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then my third and final point, when we're faithful to the end, Jesus gives us the crown of life. See, the Bible has a lot to say about being faithful. The words endure, abide, stay, persevere, all of those words are all through the New Testament. Even Jesus, right before he went to the cross in Matthew 24, he said, Then they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, if our lives are like a movie, it's almost kind of like Jesus is the executive producer. And in his letter to Smyrna, what he's doing is he's giving them a little bit of a preview of what's going to happen. He's saying, you're going to be persecuted. Satan's going to unleash it. You're going to be tested to the point of death. But if you are faithful, I'm going to give you the crown of life. If you have true faith, you will overcome. So that that encouragement for the Smyrnans, it wasn't game over for them. It was game on. So the question is, what gave them that strength? What gave them the strength to continue on with such harsh persecution? And I think the answer is, is a little bit earlier in something that we read last week in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 1, I think it's verse 8, Jesus refers to himself as the firstborn of the dead. Now, what in the heck does that mean? The firstborn of the dead. So, so listen to what he's saying. He's saying, be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. He says that in chapter 2, but in chapter 1, he says, I am the firstborn of the dead. See, the death References there? If we look back in Acts 26, it says Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Remember, firstborn of the dead and now first fruits of the dead. Later on, it says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? See, what happened, Jesus was the first to conquer death and rise again. He was the first, and the Bible teaches that he is the first of all of us. So the way Jesus died and rose again, we will one day have resurrected bodies. And so what the entire book of Revelation, it's about the second coming and the future. What Jesus is saying to these Smyrnans is that I conquered death, therefore you will conquer death because I am the first who has conquered death. I'm the first and you're coming after me. And what's going to happen is is you are going to rise again. The first death may hurt you, but the second death will never touch you. So the Smyrnans knew that death could not hurt hold Jesus, so therefore it couldn't hold them. So Jesus in this letter was telling them that true faith, it endures to the end. True faith, 
is revealed when we're persecuted and don't give in. The first death, it'll touch us. But the second death, spiritual death, we will never experience that because Jesus has gone before us and has prepared the way. I'm going to close with uh, the story of a man named Polycarp. may have heard of him, may have not. Polycarp was the pastor of the church at Smyrna. He was also known as the Bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was murdered in the year 155 A.D. He was 86 years old. And I want to read, this is literally an account of his death that was written, uh, I think this was written about the first or second century, sometime a long time ago. So I'm literally going to read word for word the way Polycarp died. And it says, in a letter addressed by the church at Smyrna to the churches in the Christian world, it is related that Jews joined with the heathen in clamoring that Polycarp, the Christian leader of Smyrna, should be cast to the lines or burned alive. And they were foremost in bringing logs for the fire. And in the endeavor to prevent the remains of the martyr from being delivered to his Christian friends for burial. It was the time of the public games. Remember I was talking about Gladiator and the Colosseum and all that? The city was crowded. The crowds were excited. Suddenly the shout went up, away with the atheists. Christians, ironically, were called atheists because we didn't worship the gods of the Romans said, away with the atheists, let Polycarp be searched for. His whereabouts were betrayed to the persecutors by a little slave girl who collapsed under torture, and they came to arrest him. On the brief journey into the city, the soldier captain pled with the old man, saying, what harm is it to just say that Caesar is Lord and offer sacrifice and save your life? Polycarp, what, what, is, what is the problem? Just say it and you'll, you'll stay alive. But Polycarp was adamant that for him, only Jesus Christ was Lord. So they entered the arena. The proconsul gave him the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or face death. And his famous words that have gone down in history are these. He said, 80 and 6 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Proconsul, they threatened him with burning. Polycarp replied, you, Polycarp replied, you threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in the everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come do what you will. Talk about faith. He remained unmovable. So the crowds came flocking with sticks from the workshops and from the baths. And the Jews, even though they were breaking the Sabbath law by carrying such burdens, were foremost in the clamor and in bringing the wood for the fire. They were going to bind him to the stake, but he said, leave me as I am. For he who gives me the power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved, even without the security you will give by the binding. So they left him loosely bound in the flames, and there he died for his Christ. See, Polycarp was not just your average Christian. He was not. He was literally the pastor of this church. Polycarp was a disciple of John himself. So Jesus discipled John. John discipled a few other people, and Polycarp was one of those. He wrote a letter to the Philippians that we still have. Like, this is a really, really important guy. 
And there are people in some countries around the world today who face persecution that is really, really similar to that experienced by Polycarp and Smyrna. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is giving them mercy and he's given them strength to endure until the end. Now, thankfully, here in America, we don't face that, at least not yet. We think if we, somebody talks bad about us on social media, that's persecution. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. But yet, there are people who, in our own society, decide that they're not going to break their commitment to Jesus. They're not going to break their commitment to Christ, even though it may cost them their jobs. They're not going to cheat on a contract at work or lie or steal to not break that commitment. They're not going to go to strip clubs with their friends when they go on business trips because they're committed to Christ. There are people who refuse to compromise that commitment to Jesus even when it gets hard. Sometimes they're demoted. Sometimes people lose their jobs. Sometimes we're ostracized by friends, by families, by our former relationships. So the question is, when persecution comes, no matter how large or how small, are we going to stand even when it gets hard? See, as our culture is becoming increasingly, it's, if you haven't noticed, it's becoming increasingly out of sync with Christianity. It's going to worsen. And as that happens, are we going to put a marker down in the Word of God and say we stand on what the Bible has to say, even though it may mean that we're talked bad about and we give up a little bit of money and we give up a little bit of fame and a little bit of slander comes our way? Even when it gets hard, are we going to stand strong in the face of persecution? So that's the question today. And I pray that God gives us the strength through Jesus to do what the Smyrnans did and to stand strong in the face, even in the face of persecution, even to the point.